So our Torah portion for this week is called Shelach Lecha, which means sent out. And it's talking about the spies being sent out to reconnoiter the land of, of Canaan, which is known as the Promised Land. So the Torah portion for this week spans the chapters of Numbers 13 to 15, but we're going to be in chapter 14. But before we go to Numbers chapter 14, I want us to go to, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. So as you guys are turning there, I will... Uh, have the liturgy blessing over the uh, over the word of God. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law does he meditate day and night. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy Torah, out of thy law. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Heavenly Father, as we engage your word, Help us not to just scratch the surface or skim over the surface or fly by or just listen to it. Let it go in one ear and out the other. But Lord, I pray that your word would grip us, would even pierce our hearts because your word is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so Lord, prick our hearts because it's become so calloused and so hard because of the things of this world. Make our hearts sensitive to your word, that we're convicted when we read it, and that conviction causes us to repent, and that repentance causes us to draw closer to you, Lord God. Help us as we read and expound upon your word this afternoon, that we may be able to hear it, embrace it, accept it, apply it, and live it out. For we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. So, Rav Shul, the Apostle Paul, says in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, do everything. What's that definition of everything? Everything. everything. Doesn't matter if you're brushing your teeth. Doesn't matter if you're working at the lumber mill. Doesn't matter if you're mopping floors here at Harvest House. Doesn't matter if you're you know, doing laundry, it doesn't matter. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Does anybody here know of any teenagers that are able to do that? I wasn't one of those teenagers. My mama told me to do something, rass and frass and cotton. I sound like Yosemite Sam. I was just grumbling, complaining. I was watching Transformers or G.I. Joe. There's no way I wanted to take the trash out at that particular moment. But Paul said, do everything without grumbling or arguing. You know what? You know what got me in trouble more than anything else growing up? Is with my mouth. My mom said, Christopher, that mouth gets you in more trouble. It was my mouth that got me in trouble. Why? Because I was always grumbling and complaining. The angst of a teenager. Some people don't grow out of their teenage years when they get saved. They get saved and they just keep grumbling and complaining and they're just like the children of Israel in the wilderness who grumbled and complained and whined and bellyached. But Paul says, do everything 
without grumbling or arguing, so that you might be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This implies that grumbling and arguing is of the way of the world, not of the way of God. Grumbling and arguing implies that it's a sin. Because it says if you're not grumbling and arguing, it means that you're blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. A twisted and crooked generation can find anything to complain about. You know, it's like well, one of those old Saturday Night Live skits that I seen when you could still watch it. Um, you know, there was a lineup of soldiers, and so, you know, the, the sergeant was, you know, making fun of just about everything of the soldier. But he'd come to a soldier that he couldn't find anything wrong with. And he's like, man, i I, I got to find something to complain about, you know. And so, you know, he's like, oh, well, look at you with your foot connected to your ankle that way. Right? I mean, he had to pick something, you know. He had to try to find something, even as ridiculous as it was. But that's the way of the world. That's the way of a twisted and perverted generation. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Why are all these protests going on in our modern day? Because somebody wants to grumble and complain about something. Something's not good enough for somebody. So they're grumbling and complaining. That's what most protests are about. I mean, there's a few righteous protests, some things that you have a right to complain about, but most of the time, Oh, that person didn't call me a they or them. Ah, and they whine and complain about that. They grumble and complain. It's the way of the world. It's a crooked and twisted generation. Among them, you shine as lights in the world. When we don't grumble and complain, we do everything without grumbling and complaining. We're like shining beacons of light and hope in the world. So it says, among them, you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that I might boast in the day of Messiah that I did not run or labor in vain. So also in Philippians, turn to chapter 4 of Philippians, and we'll read verses 6 and 7. Rav Shul, the Apostle Paul, also says, so you got the first issue about grumbling and complaining. We know that's what the children of Israel did when they were about to take over the Promised Land, but not only that, they were wetting themselves. Their knees were knocking together. They were shaking in their boots. They were scared. Or as you say in the South, scared. So in Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. That's hard. That's a hard one for me. What's the soil that most Christians live in? Because there's four types of soil. There's the hard, rocky ground. There's, there's the stony ground. There's the thorny ground. And then there's the good soil. Most of us are living in the thorny soil. Because Yeshua said, it's, it was choked off. The fruit of this plant was choked off. And the seed did not produce like it should because of the cares of this world. Because you were worried about something. You were anxious about something. So all the time, you read, do not be afraid, fear not. Well, here... It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. That's kind of the antidote for fear. It's thanksgiving. I mean, we didn't we just sing a song, Count Your Blessings? I mean, we could always find things to complain about our lives and things that aren't right and things that aren't perfect. But I bet you if we start counting our blessings and really just see how good we've got it, 
those things we're complaining about will just seem ridiculous, will seem small. Do not be anxious about every about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. And this prayer and petition, what does Jesus say in his in his parables? He says to to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. A lot of translations I don't think do a good job with that verse. It just says, you know, ask, seek, knock. But the gr- grammatical structure of that Greek is actually keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, don't stop. You know, it's like a prisoner trying to break out of prison and he digs down in the ground and he's only got this little spoon and he's been digging for years. He's, ah, oh, I'm never going to get out. I'm no, I just might as well get out. I've been digging for years now and I'm never going to see the light of day. And he gives up just on a few inches before him breaking daylight. Isn't that the way it usually is? We give up right before the breakthrough. And so he says here, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So don't give up on your prayer. Don't give up. I mean, I've been praying that the Lord heal me of something for months now. And sometimes there's some day, there's some weeks that goes by and I forget to even pray about it because I forgot to keep asking. I forgot to keep seeking him on it. I, I forgot to keep knocking. But I believe it's going to happen because I believe it's his will. I just need to keep it up. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the shalom, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. Let's take these passages and connect them to our Torah portion for this week in Numbers chapter 4. Or Numbers chapter 14, I'm sorry, not 4. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Now, you got to remember that the children of Israel were once slaves in Egypt. They were traumatized. You know what it's like to be traumatized? Like, going through school, and there's a bully, and every day you get a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach because you know this kid's going to steal your lunch money. You know this kid's going to pick on you. You know this kid is going to find you and seek you out and make your life a living hell. You're traumatized. You get PTSD because of something like that. Well, the children of Israel were former slaves, so they had a little PTSD going on. I mean, Murphy was not on their side when it comes to Murphy's Law. It seems like they always got the poopy end of the stick, so to speak. So they were traumatized. And so now they're having to face these giants in this land, and it just reminds them of all the past trauma because to them, the Egyptians were the giants. Not only did they have PTSD and trauma from years of slavery, but they also had a little Stockholm Syndrome going on because then they started saying, well, Egypt doesn't look too bad. We got to face giants? Slavery doesn't look as bad now. Their mind was all twisted around. So it says in Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, This was right after the news of the ten spies. This was right after saying, oh my gosh, there's giants in the land. They're so much taller than us, we seem like grasshoppers in their sight. And so the people thought they couldn't do it. But Joshua and Caleb says, yeah, we're going to eat them alive, man. You know, let's do this. We can do this. But it says in 14 verse 1, all through the night... The entire community raised up their voices, and the people wept. I mean, they were whining and crying and belly aching. 
And it says, all of B'nai Israel, all of the children of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole community said, if only we had died in Egypt. Oh, if we, if we had died in this wilderness. Why is Adonai bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Oh, our wives and our children will be plunder. Wouldn't it have been better to return to Egypt? Wow. So verse 2, the word grumble here. The word grumble means to willingly abide in discontent. To willingly abide in discontent. Which means grumbling is a choice. You can choose to be happy. Happiness just doesn't happen. Happiness just doesn't come upon you. <laughs> oh, I feel good. I just got tickled by the Holy Spirit. No. Happiness is a choice. We choose to be happy or we choose to grumble. So grumbling is a choice. Verse 1. All, all through the night, the entire community raised up their voices and the people wept. Instead of resting in the peace that God has got this and that God is a promise keeper before they even made it to the border and about ready to cross over into the promised land, all the way back, even before Egypt, God promised their ancestor, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. I will give it to you. It's yours. I'm going to give it to you. And finally, that time had come. The time to fulfill the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come. And God says, here it is. Yeah, I know. There's a little infestation of giants. But aren't I not bigger than the giants? I've got this. Jacob, uh, Joshua and Caleb, they knew this full well. They're like, oh, yeah, God promised this to our ancestors. It's a done deal, guys. All we got to do is just, you know, strap on our swords and go do it. We can do this. But the others were like, no, we can't. We're small. We're weak. We're former slaves. We're not trained soldiers. You know, they were, they were, they still had that slave mentality because the Egyptians looked like giants and gods in front of them. And they were afraid to go against the authority. But here, they're about ready to take the promised land. And God says, here it is. It's all yours. And they're like, nope, no thank you. So instead of resting in the peace that God has got this and he's a promise keeper, they come with the worst case scenarios all night long. They, they let their imagination run wild. I mean, it's, it's, just like, it's just like a parent. Okay, here the clock says 1130. I told my kid to be home at 11. Oh my gosh, where are they? Oh, I bet you they're dead somewhere in some ditch. Oh, somebody probably put, you know, a roofie in their drink and they're probably uh, kidnapped in a prisoner somewhere. Oh, I bet you they got some, some kind of car accident on the road and they've been flung from the vehicle and they're out in the field. We come up with all these crazy worst case scenarios just because your kid's late from coming home from a night out. And when they come home, you jump down their throat. Where were you? I was worried sick about you. You could have been dead. You could have at least called and blah, 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 blah. And you wouldn't have been so angry if you didn't come up with these worst case scenarios. These things that are in the realm of possibility, but statistically are very, very, very unlikely to ever, ever happen. But yet we entertain these ridiculous imaginary notions and we get all worked up about it. And this is exactly what the children of Israel did. They did the exact same thing. Because they heard the word giants, they let their imagination run wild. 
They said things like, oh, it's a place where the inhabitants of the land eats, eats, its, eats its occupants alive. They're saying they're cannibals. They're giants. They're bigger. They're stronger. They're more fierce. They're merciless. So they come up with all these worst-case scenarios, and they let their imagination run wild. And they determine in verse 3, they said, this is what's going to happen if we try to take over the promised land. Our wives and our children will be like plunder. Our wives and children, they're going, to be, they're going to be slaves and kidnapped by these giants. Wouldn't it be better if we returned to Egypt? They're thinking their family's going to die. They're coming up with the worst case scenarios, and they think God is leading us into a trap. God is leading us. You know, he's, he's been stringing us along, promising us freedom. But look, he's leading us into a place full of giants. What kind of God does that? kind of God that wants to get the glory, the kind of God that wants to prove that he's almighty. That's what kind of God. But they fed off the embellished fake news of the 10 spies. The 10 spies weren't even where the giants were. If you read the Hebrew carefully, it says that the 10 spies went into the promised land, but he went to Hebron. Who was he? He was Caleb. Caleb went to Hebron. He's the one who saw the giants. And he comes back and tells the other, uh, not, uh, uh, the ten spies, he's like, look, guys, I, I was just in Hebron. Now, tradition says he went to Hebron because that's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried. So he wanted to go pay the respects to the ancestors. And so he went off on his own. He says, okay, guys, you continue doing what you're doing. I'll be right back. And then he saw the giants in Hebron. And so he goes and tells the other spies about the giants, and they let their imaginations run wild. They did not even eyewitness this themselves, and yet they're giving secondhand information to the children of Israel and acting like they're the ones who saw it with their own eyes. So the children of Israel feed off the embellished fake news of the ten spies. Children of Israel didn't even research it themselves. <laughs> now those who've watched Reading Rainbow, what did LeVar Burton say? Well, you don't have to take my word for it, right? Even Paul says, you don't have to take my word for it. Be like a Berean and search the scriptures and see if what I've said is true or not. So the children of Israel, it was their responsibility to really seek out, to seek if this stuff was true that the ten spies were saying. Oh, they're the leaders of our, they're the leaders of our tribes. Why wouldn't we believe them? Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, they're the, they're the elected government officials of our province and of our nation and of our country. Why wouldn't we believe them? And yet half of what they say is a lie or an embellishment. You have to research yourself. Read between the lines. Do the research yourself. So the children of Israel failed to do this. They chose to believe the embellished fake news of the ten spies. And they failed to remember God's promise of a new land. He promised way back to Abraham that he was going to give them this land, and this was the moment, and they could have seized it, but they didn't. I mean, this promised land thing could have been an 11-day 11 11-day 11 trip from Egypt to the promised land, and boom, they could have had it right then. But they refused, and because it took 40 days to spy out the land, there was a year for each day of the spying, so they had to go into the wilderness for 40 years. God said, turn around and go back. Now, when your parent tells you to do something and you refuse to do it, you refuse until they say they're going to punish you. Well, you're grounded. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll go and take out the trash now. No, too late. You already said no. 
But, 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 but look, I'm doing it right now. No, I wanted you to do it then, not now. You're grounded. But, 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 I'm going to take it out anyway. Well, fine, go ahead and take the trash out. It's what I wanted you to do anyway, but you're still grounded. That's not fair. You know, and it, this is the way the children of Israel acted. They were refusing to do what God said to take the promised land. And then once God says, fine, fine, turn your keisters around, go back into the wilderness. Spend 40 years walking in a giant circle until all of you drop dead, except for your children, the very ones you said were going to be taken as plunder. They're going to inherit the promised land, not you. Oh, God, we're sorry. We're sorry. See, we're doing what you say. We're strapping on our swords right now. We're going to go right first thing in the morning. And Moses says, what are you doing? You rebelled against God once by not taking the land. And now when you refused and you say, oh, well, we'll do it anyway. And God said, nope, don't do it. You're going to go against him and actually try without his help. First, you had God's help with it. Now you don't have God's blessing or help at all. And you're going to be idiots. And you're going to rebel against God again by trying to take the promised land without him. Fine. Well, you're going to see what happens. They got their butts whooped. It's sad. They refused. Uh, they refused faith and gave in to fear. Because fear is the opposite of faith. So it just goes to show you that the majority isn't always right. Sometimes you hear that the majority is always right. No, they're not. The majority in this case was not right. We've been seeing in recent history a lot of things that the majority says in our country, in our nation, is not right. The majority is not always right. So they let their fear... Uh, override whatever faith they may have had. So faith is, uh, or fear is opposite of faith. Fear is the sin of unbelief. So there's a couple acronyms you can make from the English word fear. False evidence appearing as reality. These are cannibalistic giants that are going to rape our wives and eat up our children. False evidence appearing as reality. God says, no, you can take them. They said, no, they're going to get ate up. Or fear could also mean forget everything and retreat. And that's what they wanted to do. Let's get out of here. Let's go back to Egypt. We had it better off as, as slaves than being uh, ate up by giants. Or you can say forget everything and retaliate. Forget all this fear stuff and just retaliate. Do what you're supposed to do. So in verse 2, it says, All of B'nai Israel, all the children of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole community said, if we had only died in Egypt, if we had only died in the wilderness. So, blaming Moses and Aaron was in reality blaming who? God. Exactly. Because Moses and Aaron were God's civil and religious representatives to the nation. God gave them words, they gave the words to the people. But they wanted to blame Moses and Aaron like it was their crazy idea to take the promised land. No, it was God's promise. That's why it's called the promised land. I'm going to give it to you. I promise I will give this to you. But they were blaming Moses and Aaron, but in reality, they were blaming God. Remember in Samuel, when they were bellyaching for a king? We want a king like the other nations. They weren't saying that we want a king just because the other nations have a king. They wanted a king just like the other nations. What kind of kings did the other nations have? Giants. giants. They had idol kings. They had demigods. They had giants. So God says, fine. You want a giant king? I'll give you Saul. He's a head and, tall, he's a head and shoulder taller than anybody else. 
God gave them what they want. And Samuel was heartbroken because he thought that he was being rejected as the judge and prophet of Israel. And God says, no, 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 it's okay, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. In reality, they're rejecting me. So it's the same situation here with Moses and Aaron. They were blaming Moses and Aaron, but in reality, they were blaming, uh, they were blaming God. So, all right, verse 2 again, or verse, hang on just a second here. Yeah, so verse 2, they were, they, uh, all of the children of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole community said, if we had only died in Egypt, if we had only died in this wilderness, jump to verse 11. This is what God says. Adonai said to Moses, how long will these people treat me contemptibly? How long will they neglect to trust me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them. That's a pretty darn good argument. That's a pretty darn good point. How long will these people treat me contemptibly? How long will they neglect to trust in me? God never gave them a reason not to trust him. Ever. He went above and beyond to try to gain Israel's broken trust. In spite of all the miraculous signs I perform among them. At least 10 miraculous signs, the 10 plagues. Yeah, that should have been enough. And even in the Passover Seder, there's a song called Dayenu. It would have been enough. You know, it would have been enough if God would have just done this or if God would have just done that. So all the plagues, if God would have just done the plagues, that would have been enough. But each plague defeated a god of the Egyptians. So he was taking out the pantheon with each plague. But what else did God do? God split the Red Sea. And they walked across, not on muddy, you know, sinking ground. They walked on dry ground, dry shod. I mean, wow. I mean, miraculous. You can fed them until they vomited. Yeah. The, oh, that way. How about that? Right. Oh, here you go. Here you go. <laughs> Great point. You know, oh, man, we missed the melons and the leeks and the fish in Egypt. Fine, I'll give you quail. Not just for a day, not just for a week, for a whole month until it frickin' comes out your nose. There, I used your word, Mike, frickin'. <laughs> till it comes out your nose and then he fed them manna they were in the desert it's not like they can go to the nearest fishing hole it's not like there was a bunch of wild animals they could it was a desert it was impossible you know there's scholars like the, the exodus never happened because it was impossible for millions of people to traverse the desert and be provided for you know what they're right it is humanly impossible for that many people to have traversed the desert. That's why it was a miracle, because God provided for them. God gave them water from a rock. God provided manna. And there is proof they passed through that way because they have found glyphs of Paleo-Hebrew on the very route they took to the Promised Land. So they were blaming Moses and Aaron, but in reality blaming God. They played the, well, if we were in charge game... You ever played that, especially at work? You know, you think your manager's an idiot, and you're like, "Well, if I was in charge, I would do this." Well, you're not in charge, and you're not in that manager's shoes. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know what they're dealing with. It'd be—it's easy to look, be an outsider looking in, saying, "Oh, I'd do this. I'd change this." But you don't know the the backstory or or behind closed doors meeting of the stuff they have to deal with that's making their decisions hard and, and it seems unfair to you. They were playing the what if we were in charge game. 
They reasoned through human logic instead of through a divine promise. God's promises aren't logical. God is not Mr. Spock. God is not a Vulcan. God does not operate by human logic. He operates by divine, by the divine. And the divinity is not humanly logical. It's not logical to get bread from heaven. It's not logical to split a sea and walk across. It's not logical. God's miracles and promises are not logical. I'm going to let you take this promised land filled with giants. Well, they're more, they're taller, they're stronger, more fortified, more expert in, in combat. There's more populous, more numerous than us. But yet God was able to use piddly little Israel to wipe out the giants. Where do we find the remains of the giants today? As far flung as the United States. The serpent mound is a burial mound of giants. They're saying, oh, well, these were made by the Native Americans. And they're like, we didn't build those. <laughs> didn't come from us. <laughs> you can say it if you want to. but <laughs> You know, so it's like when the conquest of Canaan, these giants, they were so scared of the conquest of Canaan, they jumped boats and they sailed to God who knows where. Some of them went to, you know, the island of Cyprus. And some of them went to other parts of the Middle East. Some of them went to the Americas. But you're finding giant Nephilim remains all over because of Joshua and because of the second generation that came out of Egypt. So they reasoned through human logic instead of through divine promise. Fear caused them to see slavery better than freedom. Isn't that crazy? When you think that slavery is better than freedom, you would rather be a slave than free? Welcome to the United States and welcome to Canada because that's the mindset of the people today. As long as we have our Netflix and our internet and as long as we can smoke our dope, you can do whatever you want. We're fine. Just keep us happy with dope and Netflix and we're good. And that's exactly what the government's done. And now they're taking away our right to bear arms. They're taking our way to our right to speak the truth. You can be fined or jailed for saying certain truths. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, you want us to be in? Yeah, exactly. So fear caused them to see slavery better than freedom and the prospect of the promised land. Now, false assumptions was making God out to have ulterior motives. Their false assumptions were making God to seem evil or seem like the bad guy. Verse 3. Why is Adonai bringing us into a land to fall by the sword? God didn't really want to set us free from Egypt. God didn't really want to deliver us from the Egyptians and slavery. God just brought us out here to kill us all, to wipe us all out. That's what they're saying. Why is Adonai bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be like plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? That's pretty crazy. I mean, that's really borderline blasphemy. Attributing evil to God. Who said, wasn't it enough that I had these 10 plagues to make Egypt let you go? Wasn't it enough that I split the sea? Wasn't it enough that I fed you quail? Wasn't it enough that I fed you manna? Wasn't it enough that I brought water from a rock? I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I've tried. I've picked up a mini a rock, and I've tried to wring them and squeeze them. I can't get an ounce of moisture out of a rock. Can you? 
But God, yeah, I even liked it. But God did. And yet they still want to make God to look like the bad guy. You're just bringing out here to wipe us out. Kind of coming full circle back around to, uh, to uh, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, 16. Again, it says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that I may boast in the day of Messiah that I did not run or labor in vain. And then chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of shalom, the God of peace, which surpasses all understanding. Even God's peace is not logical. There's been times in my life where I've looked at my situation. I'm like, you know what? I should be concerned. You know what? I should be scared. You know, I've literally had my body tell me I should be scared. I've been in a certain situation and my body says, hey, hey, you, you remember last time you had a situation like this? R remember the butterflies in your stomach? You remember when you wanted to puke? Remember when you were so scared? Remember, why aren't you doing that right now? Well, because the peace of God that passes all understanding has taken over my life. <laughs> and my body was confused. Hey, you normally act this way in this situation. How come you're not doing it now? Well, because... And the shalom of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, meaning it's not logical. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, you should be scared. Any normal person without God would be scared. But it says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. Will guard your heart and minds. Now, God will guard your heart and mind. But you also have a responsibility to guard your own heart and mind. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6 talks about casting down imaginations of every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. I'm a giant and I'm going to rape your wives and eat your children. Casting down imagination of every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God like those giants. And taking into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I'm taking that thought captive because that thought comes from fear and it doesn't come from faith. That thought comes from the flesh. It doesn't come from God. That thought comes from Satan and it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. So I'm taking that thought captive. I command you to come out of my heart and mind in Jesus' name because you are not welcome here. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to stand on his promises. You can't get to the promised land without facing a few giants. He brought you to it to bring you through it. Now, when you defeat giants, you won't have any bragging rights. The bragging rights will belong to God because the battle belongs to the Lord. You're right. It doesn't make sense for a little p 90 person to defeat a giant. But when you defeat a giant, you know that God is on your side. You know it's God that did it. And you can give glory and honor to God and say, hey, can your God do this? My God can. My God did this. What has your God done? Right? He brought you to it to bring you through it. So whenever you face a crisis and you face a giant in your life, this is a chance for God to bring glory to his name. When he brings glory to his name, he'll draw all people to him because he gets the attention. Because people will know, this guy couldn't have done this. I know this guy. He's crazy. I know this guy. He's mentally unstable. I know this guy. He's fearful. But yet he did this. But yet he did this. 
So there must be something more. What's your secret? God's my secret. How many doctors just have to shake their heads because they have no other explanation for a healing? And their patient says, well, I know it's a miracle. God healed me. What, what are you going to say about that? You have no proof to the contrary. I mean, your scan said that they're full of cancer one day, and then the scan the next says the cancer's gone. What'd you do? Did you, you, you mix up the files? No, it's, it's the right file. It's the right. It's God. He gets the glory. You didn't heal yourself of cancer. It was God. So God gets the glory through all of our crises and situations. That's the beautiful thing about crises in our lives. We hate them because they make us uncomfortable. They're scary because it's uncharted territory. It's unknown because our human side wants to fear. But it's the opportunity for God to shine, for God to get the glory. And once we go through a trial and a crisis, guess what? Our faith is built up. So the next crisis comes, it'll be easier to go through it because like, hey, I've been through something like this before and it worked out. I've been through something like this and God, God hasn't failed me yet. So why is he going to start now? Right. right. Amen. Let's go ahead and uh, have a blessing over the, uh, the word. We'll have a word of prayer and sing another hymn. But the word of the Lord endures forever. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing sunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner and of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her and happy is every one that retaineth her. Heavenly Father, Lord, I mean, I'm almost embarrassed and ashamed to kind of pray because I know I'm the first to start biting my nails and getting scared when something happens in my life. And I need this lesson. I need this sermon just like everybody else. I'm getting better at it. You're helping me. But Lord, help us to understand and truly realize you've brought us this far and you didn't bring us this far to fail. You've seen us through past situations. You're going to see us through future situations. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what comes. You... Uh, you're greater than anything that could ever come against us. Help us, help that to become a reality in our hearts so that our faith will be solid, our faith will be strong, that we will stand on the promises, that we won't miss the boat when we have the opportunity to take the promised land that you have for us, that we don't have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years and wait 40 years to take what's rightfully ours. We could take it immediately because we have faith and because all fear has been banished. Just like that song, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives so lord help us help that to become a reality in our hearts and our minds today lord we love you we praise you we thank you for everything you've done for us everything that you're currently doing for us and everything that you're going to do you're a good holy gracious righteous god and we ask and pray and give thanks for these things in yeshua's name amen